0: Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore, to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. As we get closer to Halloween, we thought we'd lean into the true in True Creeps and talk about true crime. In particular, murders that happen on or right around Halloween. But first, let's start with some crime stats. Do you think more crimes happen on Halloween than any other standard day? I don't think so. Like, I don't think that generally more of like your typical crime of like break-ins and that kind of stuff happens. But I would think that People are egging houses and like vandalizing and those kinds of things. Like, yeah, I don't think violent crime goes up very much. I think that if there's a violent crime that happens on Halloween, we're going to hear about it more, though, because of the nature of what Halloween is. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah. Well, Northeastern University professor James Allen Fox said the evening violent crime count on October 31st is about 50 percent higher than any other day during the year and about twice the daily average. Huh. Do you think that's because they might have more police on duty? So people are more likely to call stuff in. Maybe an otherwise not great altercation between two people. Like say people got into a fight. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they if it was November 1st, they'd still call it in? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that it's because it's Halloween? People are like expecting other folks to act crazy. So they're a little bit more 911 trigger happy. I more think more people are out doing silly things on Halloween than the average night. More people are drinking, more people are going to parties, which means, yeah, you're getting more people together. More people are going to get mad at each other, right? Yeah, yeah. And also people are like wearing masks. And it's like a time before coronavirus where mask wearing was acceptable. It was like the only day, not the only day, but one of the only days where you could wear a mask and people weren't like, what's going on? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why are you weird? So that could be it, too, because then they feel like almost like their identity is covered so they can do more stupid things. I don't. Know. Yeah, like their inhibitions are a little less. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott Humphrey, who works for Risk Control of Travelers, said there's an average of 17% more crime related claims on Halloween. So statistically, more violent crimes occur between about 7 p.m. and 1 a.m., peaking around 10 p.m., Also, within that time frame is favored by trick-or-treaters, right? So most of them start, what, around like six-ish and end by like nine? Yeah, I think that like the phrasing of that statistic, though, it makes it kind of sound like it's the little kids that are doing it that like we're seeing a rise on like kid on kid crime. Well, think of like teenagers going out too and doing, like you said, like egging houses or TPing a house or doing silly things like that too. Did you ever do stuff like that? I never did that. You don't need to answer because you know (laughs) no i don't think we actually did that because we weren't stupid like on halloween you're gonna get caught yeah like i wasn't an asshole in that regard yeah i would never hurt halloween yeah no no that's fair that's it's a perfect holiday right so i'm just saying petty crimes in that sense but like violent crimes i don't see the correlation between trick-or-treaters and violent crimes Unless it's more, you know, more people are out of the house taking their kids out. So like there's less people inside the home. So it's easier to like overtake a person. That would make sense. I would think that because you're outside with big groups of people, you're out there for the most part, if you're with your kid trick or treating, like you're out there doing like a wholesome activity. So while you're on alert to like know where your kid is, you might not be necessarily like, what is this person who's like walking up to me? Do you know what I mean? Like people are going to pass each other. Yeah, you're focused on on different things like we talked about last week. Yeah, yeah. It's not a ghost. It's probably just a psycho murderer. Yeah, it's way better. That's way better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration found on Halloween nights between 2009 and 2013, over 40% of deaths caused by vehicles involved a driver who had been drinking, which is super stupid. Yeah, I just I can't think of any good reason to ever do that. No. So the number one type of criminal activity is property crime. So you kind of called it earlier, which, you know, that can include vandalism. And then 60% of claims involved theft from the home. And that included breaking and entering, regardless of folks for home or not. So if The house was empty versus someone being there. I guess it didn't really play a big role in it. Like you were saying earlier, it's a night where if somebody has kids, it's pretty like reasonable to think that they wouldn't be home, at least for a portion of that time. So if you were planning on robbing a few houses in a neighborhood, it's probably attractive time to do that. Not that anybody should. Yeah, don't do that. Don't ruin Halloween. (laughs) So James Allen Fox also said criminal activity peaks during trick or treat hours and trails off later in the night. Which, again, people are leaving their homes, so that makes sense. Yeah. Forensic psychologists say that the holiday's mischievous nature inspires criminals. That's a real big jump. Are they doing a study of people who have been arrested and convicted for crimes committed on Halloween and saying, Hey, just a quick question. Uh, was the holiday's mischievous nature what inspired you to commit this <laughs> crime? or?" I think it was more just like an overall like thought that... Because it's you know spooky night, people go and do silly things. No, that's I don't think that they interviewed each of them. However, I wish that they would. And <laughs> they'd ask them, Yeah, were you inspired by the mischievous nature of last night? However, I do think the next crime was inspired by the mischievous nature of Halloween. So this crime is the murder of Peter Fabiano. And it happened in 1957. So Betty met Peter in the 1940s. And per the census data, they married by 1950. Before moving to L.A., they were living in Kingston, New York, where Peter worked as a truck driver. That's a big shift. Right? I, I thought that was interesting. The couple moved to L.A. in 1956 and then opened two beauty salons. As most truck drivers do. <laughs> right? On Halloween of 1957, a little after 11 p.m., their doorbell rang. This is like the perfect setup for a scary movie. Right? Right? So Peter said, it's a little late, isn't it? As he was opening the door, thinking that it was late for trick-or-treaters. And all I thought about is, aren't you going to look? Aren't you going to look and see if it's trick-or-treaters? Okay, so our house was built in the late 70s, and... Our front door does not have a peephole, nor does it have any glass that you could see somebody with. We have, like, a big window. I guess you could, like, skitter over and take a gander out the window, but it's not really inconspicuous. So we have, like, a camera Mm -hmm. doorbell now, so it definitely makes that easier. But that's how we were doing it before we got the camera doorbell. It was, here's to hoping it's no one here to hurt us. I guess that would be fair to say, because in 1957, Ring did not exist yet. Yeah. But, I mean... Peoples did. (laughs) That's true. So when he opened the door, a figure's face was obscured by a domino mask. The assailant was dressed in blue jeans with red gloves and a khaki jacket, which you didn't match. (laughs) And also, I had to look it up because I didn't know what a domino mask is. And it's just like a little black mask, like uh, what you'd see in like Mardi Gras is the best way I'd describe it, right? Yeah. Some of the articles that I saw also described it as, this is very specific, as the type of mask that Robin wore in like Batman and Robin. Oh, that's a good, yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Yeah, I didn't understand what it was actually called, but now I know. In response to Peter's question, the assailant said no. (laughs) This just screams cheesy, scary movie, right? Yeah. I picture the person like saying no and then like dramatically stabbing the person at the door and then the killer taking, you know, his domino mask off and taking the Halloween bucket of candy and saying something like it's never too late to trick or treat and then like (laughs) cackles maniacally. I think you've missed your calling. bad Halloween movies. I think that maybe next year for Halloween, we should write like an audio drama. You know, I couldn't get through that. I'd be laughing too hard. No, we'd have we'd have other people also voice it, not just us. We'd be the, the auteurs of the, dra- the drama. Oh, gotcha. Absolutely. But when you're looking at the story and you're you're watching this unfold, are you not thinking that? Oh, no, for sure. No, I was like, okay, this reads a lot like a horror movie from the 1950s. It's very like the guy comes out and he's got a silk pajama set, of course, obviously. And he has one of those hats that kind of look like a Christmas hat, but isn't a Christmas hat. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like like a limp dunce hat again to to muppets he wear that as he as he's sleeping and then the ghosts are coming yeah obviously i mean that's how it works we're obligated to mention muppets and or furbies in each episode (laughs) i hope you have your furby tie-in for later so it's kicking around it's kicking around okay okay good (laughs) but like i kind of like imagine that really like the guys like coming out his wife is in the next room and she's got those heels with the fluff on top clearly she's like powdering her face out of vanity and then to go to bed yeah to go to bed as one does it's great for the skin and then he says it's a little late for this isn't it and like then there's a laugh track right and then he opens yeah. the door and then cut to your scene right like that's kind yeah. of what i'm picturing with you yeah yeah this is a real dark sitcom though it goes down it goes down really low, really quickly. <laughs> Oh, back to the story, then. (laughs) The assailant lifted a paper bag, which was concealing a gun, and then shot Peter in the chest. Betty's daughter from a previous marriage called the police while Betty sat with Peter. A local publication suggested that the murder seemed like a gang assassination, so police investigated why Peter might have been a gang target. They could only find that in the late 1940s that he had been a bookie in New York, which, okay, I don't. I don't see why that would make him a gang target. When I was reading about it, I thought that it was interesting. They were like, the newspaper said that it might be gang related. Better chase that down and see what the victim did wrong. That's true. That's true. When police asked Betty if there was anyone that would want to help her husband, she could only think of one person, and that was Joan Rabble. Joan Rabble was a freelance photographer and was hired to work at the salon, which what? What salon hires photographers? I don't know. When I was like looking, I didn't see tons of like there's, like old timing articles, right? They're all older. So it's kind of regurgitations of what people saw them. And so I didn't see like what exactly she did. But I thought maybe she was taking like photos for ads or something like that, maybe. Yeah, maybe she just did. I don't know. You know how they take pictures when you get a fancy hairstyle? Did they do that then too? Uh, maybe. Maybe for, yeah, for them to post on Facebook. Yeah, as they it's did. 1957. Yeah. Yeah. For them to like print and they hand out to their friends and say, look at this haircut I got. Look, Midge. <laughs> yeah, their name definitely would be Midge. Or Mittens. No, the Mittens is a cat. We've discussed <laughs> that. So Joan got very friendly with the couple. Betty and Peter started having marital issues and then Betty moved in with Rabble, which sure Was that a thing that people did then, like just moved out, especially because she had kids. I don't know if the kids moved too, but like, I thought that was interesting that she just kind of slid on out. Publications at the time didn't come right out and say that there was a romantic relationship between Betty and Rabble, but it was insinuated. So she moved into her girlfriend's house with her kids when she left her husband, it sounds like. When Peter and Betty reconciled, Peter demanded that Betty cut Rabble out of her life. Sounds fair if they were dating, right? Yeah, I'm like, if you're having an affair, I feel like you get to be like, we'll get back together. But you you can't keep having an affair unless like that's a discussion that's had and you're in and you're open to polyamory. Yeah, I don't think they were. Right, right. It sounds like they weren't. The police picked up Rabble, but without any evidence, they could not hold her. Rabble said that she had been home all night and her neighbors confirmed her story because her car was in the driveway all night. About two weeks after the murder, an anonymous tip was called in to tell police that the murder weapon was in a locker in a department store in downtown L.A. That's a very specific anonymous tip. Absolutely. Like when I was reading this, too, I was thinking, like, I can't imagine that they were like, you know where we should look. We should start going into stores and seeing if they have lockers, which that's a weird thing to me that department stores would have lockers. Yeah, that's weird. But maybe it was like, I don't know, some put your big coat in. (laughs) You know, like, oh, the the murder weapon is in twenty four F. Yeah, here's the little key. That's just very weird. Exactly. Yeah, the handgun was registered to Goldine Pizer. And one thing I want to point out about Goldine is that her name is spelled G O L D N Y E. For some reason, when I first started looking at this, I just kept calling her Golden Eye <laughs> in my head. I mean, I agree that it does look like that in text. I also do like love that name though. It is actually really cool. Yeah. But throw a couple E's in there and you got GoldenEye. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's two E's. But the first E could be assumed. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So GoldenEye, Pizer. Yeah. Pizer was arrested on November 12th, 1957. Pizer confessed and told police that Rabble coerced her into shooting Peter. So per Pizer's confession, she told me that Mr. Fabiano was a vile, evil man. A man who destroyed everything around him. She told me that he mistreated his wife and that he was dealing narcotics. So yeah, so Rabble then was mad, it sounds like, that her girlfriend left her to go be back with her husband. And then they created a murder plan. Yeah, Heiser bought the gun using money Rabble had given her. A couple of weeks before the murder, Piser and Rabble drove by the Fabiano home so Rabble can point out who Peter was. Rabble had borrowed a car from one of her friends. The friend would later confirm this, stating that Rabble put 37 miles on it. If I loaned my car out, I would not know that someone put 37 specific miles on it. When I first heard that, I was like, hmm, it sounds like you weren't pleased with how far she drove your car. (laughs) Because I also would not realize, like, I'd be like, okay, you brought it back and the gas tank isn't empty. Great. Yeah, that's what I would notice is the gas is gone, not... You put 37 miles on my car. 37 miles. But that explains why her car never left the driveway that night. Rabble had picked out Pizer's clothes for the night of the murder, which it did not match. Rabble. (laughs) Rabble and Pizer sat outside the Fabiana home until the light in their bedroom went out. Then Rabble said, all right, go do it. So after the murder, Pizer got back in the car with Rabble where they kissed and Rabble thanked her. So... Rabble, if you want to get back with this girl, you, you can't be getting with Pizer. That was my thoughts. Right? It's just this weird triangle. It's she's just making it worse. <laughs> she is. After burning their clothes and returning the car to her friend, Rabble said, Forget you ever knew me, and the pair parted ways. Very dramatic. Yeah, it is very dramatic. Pizer told one of the psychiatrists that examined her during the trial. I had no motive, personally. Whatever motive I had was to please Joan. I had always been easily influenced. I have been impressionable and always trusting. That's no excuse. It's absolutely no excuse. I think also one of the things that I find really fascinating is in articles about this. They describe Betty as this like beautiful redhead, and then they describe Pizer as a really homely redhead. And it's the knockoff brand of Betty. It's like a knockoff Betty. Okay. And it makes me sad because, it's like, Piser's clearly, like, trying to win Ravel's affections and is like, she's in this and she's like, okay, I'm going to kill your ex-girlfriend's husband, sure. And I would imagine that she's not thinking that they're going to, like, forget they knew each other. I'm sure that was a little bit of a shock to her. Right? I just did this for you. <laughs> like, I literally just murdered a dude for you and you're breaking up with me? This feels weird. I wonder if she said at the beginning, though, to, like, help this girl that she obviously had feelings for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I want to know, like, what was going through Ravel's head. Did she think that she could have her new girlfriend kill her old girlfriend's husband and then she would, like, run away and have a happy life with her old girlfriend, Betty? I'm guessing so, because it sounds like they had what they wanted for a short period of time before Betty got back with her husband, right? Yeah. So, sure. Okay. Both Pizer and Rabble pled not guilty. Pizer said by reason of insanity. I mean, her gullibility. Yeah. When recounting the murder, Pizer wept, but Rabble smiled. She was happy she still kind of got her way, right? Like, yeah. It might be because she feels like she still sort of got her way and she helped Betty by getting rid of the bad husband, right? Yeah. I don't know if she ever thought that he was bad or was just trying to influence Pizer. Maybe. And being able to get her to do it. But I mean, either way, I think she was happy with the end result. Right. Well, both women were sentenced to five years in prison. It seems like an awfully short amount of time for killing someone when one of you has confessed. Yeah. So the next story we have is the murder of Sister Tadia Benz. On the night before Halloween of 1981, someone snuck into the St. Francis Convent in Amarillo, Texas by cutting open a window screen and climbing into the community room on the first floor of the convent. The assailant then made their way to 76-year-old Sister Tadea's bedroom. Once they were there, they stabbed her, they beat her, they raped her, and then eventually strangled her to death. Horrible. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, especially considering like the age. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, for anyone, but for a 76-year-old woman, it feels especially brutal. So the next morning, the other nuns of the comet find her body and she's positioned near her bed and she's naked. So I think they thought that she had just fallen out of bed and died of natural causes because they wrap her up in a sheet and they call the funeral home to pick her up. It seems like they may have had it happen before, the way that it was described. Oh, she's dead. Go get the sheet. I would imagine that in a place that has, like, older folks that stay there until, like, for their remaining days, I feel like it would be pretty rare not have some older nuns in a convent. Also, I don't understand why they thought she just fell out of bed and died of natural causes when she was stabbed. There would be a ridiculous amount of blood. So the stab wounds that she had, they weren't from, like, a a regular knife. They were tiny, which is one of the reasons why they may not have seen them. Mm. I also, in everything that I read, I couldn't find if she was face down or if she was laying on her back. So if she was face down, they may not have seen the stab wounds because I think they were to her the front of her body. Gotcha. And also, honestly, like I would imagine they like saw their naked friend and then immediately covered her up, probably just instinctually. Mm-hmm. But also, why would she be naked, sleeping, you know, like a, a nun? Maybe nuns like to let it breathe. You know what I mean? I feel like they would be against that. <laughs> I don't know. She could have like sat down on her bed to change or something like that. But so a couple hours after they call the funeral home, that's when they realize that the window in the community room is open and that the screen's been cut out. So they call the police. When the police get there, they collect evidence. Sister Tadea's nightclothes, a kitchen knife that was found under the bed. It was specifically a butter knife, which I thought was interesting. Pubic hair from the assailant. Fingerprints that were on the knife, the butter knife that was found, on both the blade and the handle. And then there were fingerprints on the headboard. And there was also a steak knife that was found in the convent driveway. And neither of the knives that were found were what stabbed her. Oh, weird. So we just had like a a satchel of knives? Yeah, there was something else. Well, it looked like the knife maybe was from the convent kitchen, like the butter knife. And then we'll talk about the steak knife in, in a little bit. So by the time the police recover Sister Tadia's body from the funeral home. It's already been cleansed and they've completed arterial balming. Oh my gosh. So 20 minutes later? Jeez. It was about two hours because it was like they found her at 7 a.m. and then the funeral home came and they probably didn't get there right away. But I don't that know. That just seems like a very quick turnaround time. Yeah, they're very efficient. The autopsy revealed contusions to the head, stab wounds to the chest. And again, they didn't notice when they were cleaning her. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was strange because I would imagine that, say, the nuns who found her didn't notice, the people who were processing her body surely would have seen puncture wounds. From how I've seen it described, they were smaller, like clearly from a knife, but from a smaller knife, maybe. So visible for sure. Yeah, There was also excoriation and abrasive injuries to the front and back of her neck, which I didn't know what that meant. So excoriation is a linear, like erosion resulting from scratching, like her neck had been scratched. And an abrasion is from where the the skin was rubbed or scraped away by friction. Ooh, okay. Interesting. So she had both. They also found evidence of rape and they did find fluids in her. However, the fluids were never collected as evidence. That's horrible. Yeah. So earlier that year, another woman was abused and killed in a similar manner. Additionally, another elderly woman had also been beaten and raped in the same area. And so I would imagine that if we're talking about women who are in their 70s, that's a relatively like a unique victim pool. Right. I feel like for a rapist. So it's interesting that we'll talk about this more in a moment, but it, it's interesting that they weren't immediately connecting who they thought did this. Right. Compared to the other crimes. So on the same night that Sister Tadeo was attacked and killed, another woman was raped and beaten into a coma. So witnesses say they saw an olive complected man leaving the convent and they described him as having been like of Cuban descent because there were a lot of like Cuban refugees that had recently moved to the area. Okay. And so the police picked up Fernando Flores. I couldn't see why they picked him up in particular, just that he was a man of Cuban descent, which is not enough to pick someone up. <laughs> no. But someone does positively identify him from a lineup who had seen the person fleeing. Okay. But they don't really have any other evidence, so they let him go. Because I think they're aware at that time, really all they have is someone saying this person looks like they were Cuban. This is a Cuban person. Right. So pretty soon after, a psychic named Bubbles goes to a local newspaper to report that she had a vision of the killer and that he was a teenage male who lived in a house near the convent. Before Bubbles went to the newspaper, though, she found the house she had seen in her vision. Like she knew exactly where the house was. And she leads police to the house of 17 year old Johnny Garrett. That's crazy. And also I want to know more about Bubbles. Was that her given name? Did she just choose Bubbles? And is she a Powerpuff girl? I too was fascinated by Bubbles because in the first few articles I read about this, Bubbles was not mentioned, which to me felt like a travesty because it's a very interesting and peculiar fact that it was a psychic who originally took the police over to Johnny Garrett's house. Right. And knew exactly where it was. I mean, unless she saw him return home bloody or something, that's just fascinating. She also, in her original vision, she recounts that she described aspects of a house and that she knew that the person who had committed the crimes, had relation to the name Clyde. And then when they went to the house, the house looked like the house in her vision. And there was a doghouse outside with the name Clyde on it. Yeah. But that also sounds like if she's from the area, maybe she saw that house before. You know what I mean? Right. Still interesting. Definitely interesting for sure. So Bubbles' name is Inez. Last name begins with a P. But I think she goes by Bubbles because she works with police in other cases. And her specific vision was Inez described the psychic suspect as a young man with light olive skin. He was about five foot 11, she said. And although he was thin, he had a muscular small frame. She didn't see any facial figures, but she did say he looked like Abe Lincoln. Okay, Bubbles. And that she said that he had Afro type hair, but it was a wig. And his face was half black and half white. What does that even mean? And that he had large ears. So like he has an Afro wig but an Abe Lincoln face. And he's got big ears. I want to see a picture of Garrett now. (laughs) (laughs) This is not described Garrett. This is like a spoiler alert. Like it really doesn't. Like, it's interesting how she got Garrett from this. Yeah. Maybe he was more olive complexed than the photos that I've seen because I feel like most of the photos I saw were black and white, but definitely interesting. Yeah. So, Naturally, going off of Bubbles lead, police pick up Garrett. So Garrett says that he had been at his mother's house the night of the murder, but witnesses near the convent say they saw him running away. It seems like there's multiple different people who say they saw someone and they're all kind of confused on who they saw running away. I also I I, I question a little bit how much you can identify someone's face if they're running away. Yeah, especially in the nighttime. Yeah. So he said that he was at his mom's house, right? But his mother's neighbors say that, first off, he was seen that night near another elderly woman's home and that he was kind of like prowling around. And then another said that Garrett had come to his house around 11 that night. So clearly he didn't just stay there. Right. So even if he wasn't at the convent, he wasn't just at his mom's house. So Garrett's fingerprints were found on the kitchen knife, that butter knife that we talked about before, and the headboard. Oh, wow. Yeah. Garrett explains that by saying that a few days before the murder, he entered the comment through the front door because he was looking for something to steal. Interesting to confess to a separate crime, but okay. It never took place. Yeah, that never took place. So his fingerprints were on the headboard because he said he was using the headboard to balance himself because he was trying to reach for a cross that was above Sister Tadia's bed that he wanted to steal. But another encounter that the front door was usually locked, so he probably couldn't have just walked in. Right. But there were no valuables missing and that they kept most of them locked up anyway. And that there was never a cross hanging above her bed. Yeah, which I was like, interesting. I kind of would have assumed there was too. But what that kind of tells me is like, maybe he wasn't in the room. Right, he didn't know what it looked like. Yeah. So the other evidence that police say points in the direction of Garrett is that the steak knife that was found in the driveway looks similar to those in Garrett's home. OK, I mean, steak knives kind of look like steak knives. And I would imagine in the 80s, even more so. Like now they're a lot different, but I would imagine they're not too separate, right? I Yeah, I don't think there was as many kinds or brands, right? Yeah, I don't know the history of cutlery, though. So, anywho, police also allege that Garrett's pubic hair had similar individual characteristics as that that's found on and around Sister Tadia's body. And I couldn't find anything that specifically explained that other than the fact that it was dark and curly. And that doesn't feel like a very unique trait, right? Well, first off. Did they ask him for like a sample of it? Like what happened? You bet your bippy they did. That's so weird. Oh, for sure. It's weird. So this was in the early 80s. I feel like they would have had or I guess it, it has been a long time ago, but I feel like they would have had better, better comparison tools, you know? Oh, oh for sure like you have dark curly pubes too probably isn't a good piece of evidence to like lay your case on but so interestingly as i had mentioned before they didn't link the suspects for the multiple cases of the things that had happened that were similar right so there was other rapes and beatings there was specifically the rape beating and murder of another elderly woman but they weren't connected to Garrett but those cases did have dna so i thought that that was of particular interest And it seems a little odd to me that you would have so many similar cases, but they wouldn't be connected. But Amanda and I have also felt in a little bit of a rabbit hole about a certain string location of murders in Texas specifically. So this isn't altogether surprising, but it's something that's going to be brought up over and over again when we talk about the innocence or guilt of Garrett. Yeah, well, maybe maybe they were just far enough out of like that jurisdiction to where they didn't talk as much as they should have. Yeah, well, most of them, Well, what I was talking about happened in Amarillo specifically. So it's all the same jurisdiction. So I think that's why it feels like a little more egregious because they should at least be like, these things happened in our town. <laughs> this is weird. Yeah, that's horrible and scary. Yeah. So Garrett was charged and convicted of capital murder and was sentenced to execution. He maintained his innocence Until his execution, like he never went back on it. And he was executed on February 11th of 1992. So one of the interesting things I think about this case is that there's supposedly a curse that goes along with him. And there's some letters that I'm not sure if they're real or not. I go back and forth between like believing whether they are. And they're kind of they like scrawling the script and they're a little difficult to read. We can post them on our Instagram. But they talk about how he's going to like give gifts to everyone who was complicit in his execution because he was an innocent. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I found a list of the alleged cursed happening. So we'll go through them really quick. And I want to get your opinions on whether this is just the shitty thing that's a part of life because we all have bad things that happen to us and people around us or whether you think it's part of the curse mm-hmm. okay. juror novella sumner fell on a flight of stairs and died a few days later after complications curse yeah another juror nathan shackleford his daughter died from an accidental gunshot wound to the head and then his sister was run over and killed by a drunk driver i think that's bad gun ownership and doing something stupid yeah yeah don't drink and drive yeah Garrett's trial lawyer, Bill Colias died of pancreatic cancer. Life. Sounds like it sucks, but doesn't feel like. Yeah, right. Garrett's first appellate lawyer, Bruce Sadler, and post-conviction trial judge, Sam Kaiser, both contracted the same form of leukemia. Ooh, that's that's a little different. Kaiser died, but he was initially cured. His healthy bone marrow that was collected just in case it came back disappeared from the hospital. Ooh, weird. Right? Cover-up curse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Don Boydston and Officer Walt Yerger also got and and died of leukemia. So the curse of leukemia he gave to all these people? That's crazy. Yeah, it's strange. But also, I mean, it's not necessarily like very rare disease. That's true. So there was a news reporter that had covered the case. She died in an airplane crash. The medical examiner who originally looked at Sister Today's body and found the cause of death, he, (laughs) so he was later convicted because he was falsifying autopsy reports and for other numerous felonies. So, understandably, his medical license was revoked. Right. And he was sent to prison. That feels like he was not a great human and was doing some messed up things. And karma came and knocking. Right. So, there was a jailhouse snitch that testified against garrett and in return he got a reduced sentence and so what he said was that originally that garrett said that he had committed the crime and that then he went back and said no i didn't no i didn't and so he also committed suicide also his school teacher who testified against him committed suicide how did a school teacher he was bad in school yeah it's a weird it's a maybe a character witness i guess i guess yeah maybe so also the district attorney, he and his daughter both killed themselves as well, but at different times. And one of Garrett's appellate attorneys lost his wife when she committed suicide and then his son was accidentally locked in a hot car. Oh no. And so he lived, but he suffered brain damage. There's also some more folks that are in there that I don't know much about that like also had very unfortunate happenings. But I, I kind of like teeter between is this a curse or is this just like the darkness that is life? right follow a group of people too long the majority i mean ultimately the majority of them uh, all of them will die eventually yeah and it's just documenting how how they died yeah i mean that is a lot of leukemia and a lot of suicide though in a group of people i don't feel like if you took a took a trial right and like took every single person in this trial and watched their life for 50 60 years after that trial would that many of them die of suicide and leukemia i don't know As I was originally reading this case, I was like, this feels like he did it, right? Like, this is a lot of evidence. But it gets a little more interesting, I think, when we think about, okay, clearly there were other murders and other violent crimes that were similar in nature to this. So that seems like it may have been the same person, but it doesn't seem like those were Garrett and he was never charged with them. And so as part of his appeals and trying to basically get out of the death penalty, he was examined by multiple psychiatrists and psychologists. And- Mm -hmm. His history of abuse and mental state weren't shared with the jury. Yeah. And so one of the folks who identified him when describing his abuse, they said that what he suffered as a child was, quote, one of the most virulent histories of abuse and neglect I've encountered in over 28 years of practice. Well, that's sad. Yeah. As a result of head injuries, he suffered as a child. He was also deemed extremely mentally impaired and chronically psychotic. He suffered from paranoid delusions, including his belief that he would survive a lethal injection. Oh, wow. I mean, that is the recipe for a serial killer, though, isn't it? It, it, it is. It It is. I am going to talk about the specifics of his abuse. So a trigger warning, if you don't want to hear about that, so you might want to skip ahead a little bit. So Garrett was raped by his stepfather, and his stepfather also let another man have sex with him in exchange for money. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So starting at the age of 14, he was forced to engage in, quote, bizarre sexual acts and participate in pedophilic homosexual porn. His family started giving him drugs and alcohol when he was just 10. Accordingly, he started developing a serious substance abuse problem, and he would use things like amphetamines, but also paint thinner. He was regularly beaten, and he had severe scarring on his body from being put on the burner of the stove at least once. All of this was not given to the jury. That's weird. It's very weird. But I I also will say, like, when you're thinking about, like, evidence and basically anything to include in a trial, one of the things you want to ask is, is it relevant? And while it's relevant to the sentencing and whether he's fit for trial, I don't know whether this is relevant to whether he actually did it, right? Because I don't think any of this precludes him from being able To complete the acts that they said he did, right? It's kind of strange, I think, to not include it because it sounds like it's part of the totality of the circumstances. It's not necessarily, I don't think it speaks to whether he could have. It speaks to if he did, how should we then punish or rehabilitate this person if we know that this is like where they're starting? right? But one of the things that folks routinely kind of like point back to was that the DNA was mishandled and it wasn't included. And they didn't consider the other crimes as to being his, which meant that they weren't also considering anyone else for her murder. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, there was more. So in 2004, DNA from the other crimes was matched to Ancio Perez Rita. And at the time, he was serving time for the rape and murder of Narni Box Bryson. And so he was arrested in the same neighborhood as the convent just a little while before the murder of Sister Tedia. And he was caught peeping in the window of an elderly woman. And he was just charged with trespassing and they released him. So it doesn't seem like he served any time for it. No. So knowing this, Jesse Quackenbush, who was, I know I love his last <laughs> name who was an attorney who was hired by the Garrett family, he went and interviewed Ruida. And so the Garrett family hired an attorney to clear Garrett's name because they were very, very sure that it wasn't him. I want to think that his mother corroborated his alibi at the time, but they were like, your mom can't vouch for you. So Quackenbush goes and talks to Ruita. He confesses that he did rape and murder Narni Box Bryson and also a nun. But he doesn't say Sister Tidia's name, just a nun. And he also said that his friend, Fernando Flores, forced him to rape women. And Fernando Flores, if you remember, was the person who was picked up in the beginning, right? Like the random like Cuban guy. They were like, you're a Cuban guy. right. The rando. And so Rita was also in Amarillo from 1980 to 1981, and he was known to carry a pocket knife that was similar in size to the puncture wounds that were on Sister Tadea. So they wondered if that was perhaps the weapon that was used for that, because it wasn't big enough to kill her, but it was certainly big enough to inflict damage. Yeah. And so. And that's. That's a long time after he was already killed, Garrett, right? That's sad. Yeah. Yes. This is a very long time after. And it is it is very sad. And as far as I'm aware, I don't see that Ruida came out and officially said, like, yes, I did kill Sister Tadea. But it's widely believed that Garrett was innocent. It sounds like it. Yeah. And also, when I read about his abuse, it was from Amnesty International website. It was in, like, an article talking about the death penalty and why it should be abolished. Because of cases like this. Got it. Okay. You know, years later, they find more information. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's horrific. Yeah. And that they were so close, like they had the friend in custody at one point. Yeah, yeah, they were like, just close enough. And like, Rita was also known to sometimes stay with Flores. So if they had like done a search of his home, maybe they would have found Rita there. Interesting and, and horrible and terrifying and sad. And I learned the name Quackenbush. And Quackenbush also made a documentary about it. There's also a horror movie about Garrett's last words that I also didn't get a chance to watch, but oh, boy, do I want to. And one thing that really is useless, but you said that they confessed to the rape and murder of Narni Box Bryson. Her name is Box. Her middle name is Box. I think so. Okay. Just to clear that up, that is a middle name. It is Box. I love it. Yeah. So for any of those looking for middle names out there, we got you. That's the one. Anywho, I want to start using the word quack and bush like the Smurfs use Smurf. Like it's a real quack and bush day for a bike ride. Or <laughs> quack and bush. Yeah, or like, I'm going to bush the hell out of this hamburger. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> Quackenbush. Oh my god, it also means like cool things. Oh my god. Okay, 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 okay. You ready? It literally means fucking swamp wilderness. That is an awesome last name. (laughs) Fucking Swamp Wilderness. Because it's from the duck quack, which is Q-U-A-A-K, which means swamp, with bosh, which means woodland or wilderness. So, Swamp Wilderness. Okay. So... I guess we'll move on from Quackenbush to the next. So, we're going to move on to 2004, and it's the murders of Adrian Insogna and Leslie Mazzara. In 2004, two women moved into a house together on Dorset Street in Napa, California, and it was Adrian Insogna and Leslie Mazzara. They had the two rooms upstairs. Later in that summer, Lauren Minza moved in as well and took the downstairs bedroom with her dog Chloe. So, three women in total and Miss Chloe. On the day that the first two had moved in, a few friends helped them and then also celebrated with them for them getting that home. Two of the friends were a couple that Adrian knew. Their names were Lily Prudhomme and Eric Koppel. They later broke up and Eric had a really hard time dealing with the breakup. So fast forward then to Halloween night. Around 2 a.m., Lauren, who again was in the downstairs bedroom, woke up because Chloe was whining and slightly growling. So... She listened for a few minutes and she heard some noises, but she assumed one of the roommates had maybe brought a guy home. This had actually happened a couple days before and a little bit of a disagreement had broken out between them because it kept the other roommates up at night. First, when I was looking at that, I was like, I wonder if they're just like, do not bring boys home. No, I think that they were just too loud. Oh, <laughs> it annoyed the roommates. Feels fair. But they got over it. Yeah. So she tried to go back to sleep. Then she woke up a little bit later to screaming and she heard Adrian screaming, saying, oh, my God, please help, please help. So Lauren opened her door and was almost frozen in fear, which understandable, you know, she's at the bottom floor and she hears her friends screaming for help. So then the killer who was in the home starts running down the stairs. And so she ran towards the back door and She recalls that the backyard had a six foot wall and she had no way to get out. So she went towards the back door, ended up outside in the backyard. She was interviewed on ABC News later on after all of this happened, describing the yard and how she was almost like trapped back there. And I just kept thinking there's no gate. Yeah, you're stuck. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. So she waited outside and what she described was like it went quiet in the house for a little bit. And I don't know how what period of time that is. She could still hear her friend pleading for help. So unsure if the killer left or if he was still in there, she went back in. And she tried to call 911 immediately, but in the kitchen, the lion was dead. Oof. So she went upstairs to check on her friends. That also feels like classic horror movie, right? Like the lion is dead. Yeah, it totally does. So she went up to Adrian's room and saw that there was blood everywhere. While upstairs, she saw Leslie face down in a pile of clothes with stab wounds on her upper body and arms. Adrian was crouched behind the bed, but was still alive. She couldn't speak anymore and she was losing a lot of blood from stab wounds. Lauren remembers slipping in her roommate's blood while running to get her cell phone to call 911. While on the phone, that phone line went dead as well. So while she's talking to 911. So I don't know if her cell phone just died or or what happened. She thought the killer still could be nearby. So she got into her car and drove away while calling 911 again, which is like, it's hard to put yourself in that situation. You know, like, what would you do? You hear someone upstairs being murdered, you run outside, you hide. And then I don't know if that's ever come across like we have high walls as well. But, you know, obviously we have a gate. But imagine like being trapped back there with no way to get out like you're just kind of sitting in the backyard i don't know it's just it's weird to think about yeah and like at first hearing like she drove away i was like woof and then i was like well like if she went to try to move her friend it probably would be worse than if somebody if she went and got help you know what i mean and like it's the same kind of idea like you have to put your face mask on first if you were in an airplane that's going down because you can't save anyone else if you're not alive so That's true. Yeah. Well, I've read so many different articles on this case, too. And some are like she left and called 911, like she ran away and called, but then when she was interviewed, I'm gonna trust her yeah. words on ABC. That's where she says she went outside in the back for a while. So a couple different varying stories there. But yeah, I mean she just got on her car, drove away, but it's it's sad that her one of them at least was still alive yeah. at that time. But if he would have come back, yeah, he could have murdered her. So unfortunately both the two women who were stabbed did pass away. Did the killer hurt Chloe? It doesn't talk about Chloe. I mean she got out and from what I understand, Chloe was fine. I tried to look into it and I didn't see anywhere where, you know, the dog died. So she kept trying to quiet Chloe when she first heard like the talking, thinking, you know, one of them brought a guy home. So I don't know if he heard her, yeah. you know, like if he was upstairs and she's in this bottom room with her door shut. A lot of houses do have like a, a room downstairs, but it sounds like maybe he didn't know yeah. that there was room down there. And then it sounds like when he was running down the um, stairway, he was making a lot of noise that he probably didn't even hear her run to the back door. Yeah, he also may have like been going down to leave, not necessarily to come get her. Right, exactly. Yeah, because well, while she was outside, in one of the articles it said like, he was fiddling with one of the windows. So I think he was just trying to find a way to escape. So the investigation, the scene, Tom Shulman, who was a homicide detective said, It was a very, very bloody crime scene. It was the most bloody crime scene I've seen in my career. And I watched the Forensic Files episode on this too. And it showed a couple photos and short videos from the scene. And there was blood everywhere. It was everywhere, everywhere. So there was no evidence of sexual assault. Nothing was stolen. So it was very hard to determine what the motive was. Zip ties were found underneath the front window. It was believed by investigators that he might have taken the zip ties to bind the women. And it sounds like the zip ties were bundled together with a rubber band. And they, they was just found in the window where he would have entered the home. It sounds like it just like fell out of his pocket as he's like getting through the window would be my assumption. Forensic specialist Janet Lipsy said that Adrian fought really hard and that she had reading glasses either in her hand or on her face and they were cut with the knife. Damn. So my guess is that she heard something happening in her friend's room and like got up and then saw what was happening and tried to like fight him. So there was a trail of blood to the front window. Also, there's a lot of blood found on the aluminum siding outside the house as well. So it was believed that the killer injured himself during the attack. Investigators also found cigarette butts out front. So they found a couple of them. So like he was standing outside? Hmm. Yep. Well, they they weren't sure because you know outside, unfortunately, people litter and they're terrible. That's fair. And you know they're not sure is it someone walking that just like threw it down? Did one of the girls smoke? They didn't know at first. So they collected a ton of evidence. And when a couple of the people were interviewed for forensic files, they actually discussed like DNA analysts and things like that. Were like it was a lot, a lot of evidence more than we normally get. So testing revealed that the killer was a white male. It also gave clues about his appearance and what part of the world his ancestors came from. So I thought that was really interesting because it was able to identify his eye color, his hair, and the color of his skin. Huh. That's pretty specific. Yeah. Yeah. So they had like a pretty good profile on this person. So it it showed primarily from Northwestern European ancestry and had a small amount of Southeastern European ancestry. So something about, you know, what it was able to identify, I guess what the test did is it found a small marker in one of the killer's genes, and it indicated that he'd have either blue or green eyes and most likely light colored hair. Hmm. That's just fascinating that they can find that much from like a drop of blood, right? It makes me a little nervous. (laughs) Well, they put this into databases and unfortunately no matches came up. It was also believed that the killer was right handed based off of where the blood was on the wall. So like him catching himself as he was walking was their guess. Investigators conducted approximately a thousand interviews with no payoff. I saw some articles that said upwards of 1300. Wow. Which just sounds crazy. That's so many interviews. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it was like a thousand people. It just means, you know, they could have called the same person in several times too. During the investigation, the detectives turned their attention to DNA found on camel Turkish gold cigarettes that were found outside the house. So Lauren confirmed, so she was a survivor, she confirmed that no one smoked. None of the girls in the house smoked. So when police looked into the cigarette brand, they realized that it's a fairly new cigarette brand and they weren't sold everywhere quite yet. And the stores that did sell them said that they only sold one to two packs a week. Hmm. So that narrows down, you know, a little bit. Yeah. When tested, the DNA found on the cigarette matched the blood that was also found that did not belong to the girls. It also matched skin cells that were found on the rubber band binding the zip ties. This is a real sloppy murderer. He's just like littering DNA all over the place. Right, right. DNA fairy. But this investigation took a long time. It was months and months from what I understand. So it wasn't like a fast, like couple week turnaround time. It was a long time. This makes me, this reminds me literally of like the juxtaposition between this and Villisca. It blows my mind, right? Right. Think like bloody murder. And there they're like, let's have a party. And here they're like, we're going to preserve everything and pick up things that are outside of the house just in case. Like what a way to go in less than a century, right? Right. Yeah, that's a big jump. So in mid-August, police informed Lauren that the killer was probably a smoker. And basically, they asked, like, do you know anyone that could smoke? And, you know, she is racking her brain going, well, the only person I really know is this guy named Eric Koppel. He was at the celebration when we when the girls had first moved in. And then he also attended her friend's funerals. But she's like, he's he's really shy. I don't know. The way that I understood it is she was just like, I know this guy, but I don't think so. So a month later, she checked in with police and they still had been unable to reach him. So here's my thing. I think that this guy must have given off such like a low-key creepy vibe for it to stick with her. Right. Like imagine like everyone who you encounter, like some people are going to smoke, some people aren't. I literally could not name the friends that I have that smoke. And I know that some of them smoke cigarettes. I just couldn't tell you who. She had to rack her brain though. They're like, who do you know that smokes? And it's hard to say, oh, I think this person, because if you say that person's name, they're automatically like a suspect, Yeah, that's true. You know, so I'm sure it was like really hard on her. And then on top of all that, think of like the survivor's oh, I'm guilt sure. she has. Like, why did he spare me? Was it because I was in the bottom bedroom? Did he know that I was even there? A million things, I'm sure, were going through her head. But she named him. They hadn't checked with him yet, apparently, which that's nonsense to me. Police also released information about the DNA finds and the cigarette brand. So they released that information that's out there in the world. People who knew Koppel recognized the brand of cigarette. And within a few days, Eric Koppel turned himself in before police could question him. He knew it was only a matter of time before they came for him. It sounds like him and some of his family members, maybe friends, talked about it. It sounds like he almost confessed to someone at first in my readings. I can't say that for sure. But it sounds like they're like, you need to turn yourself in. Like, he was probably really scared and freaking out. Yeah. So Koppel's arrested. He's charged with two counts of first degree murder. He confessed, but he wouldn't say why he did it. Some believe that he blamed Adrian for the breakup between him and Lily. Remember, yeah. so they had broken up a, while, a little while after they all had moved in. And from some accounts, some people speculate that she said that Lily could do better than him at points. And then I did read some also believe that he might have made a pass at one of the girls at some point and was afraid that they would tell Lily, even though they were broken up. But, you know, he was very much trying to reconcile this. I don't know for sure. And then he also claimed that he didn't know what he did with the murder weapon. Which, like, if you've already confessed, just give it all up. Yeah, that is weird. Do you think that maybe he, like, held on to those things, like, just in case, like, he wanted bargaining chips? Maybe. That could be. But who knows? So just a couple random things from this, too. The story of that night. On the night of the murders, Koppel went to a Halloween party... And he had ran into his ex-fiance, Lily. So at this time, they were still broken. You know, they're broken up. Witnesses say the two of them argued. Koppel wanted to set a new date for the wedding, but Lily didn't want to. And that sounds really weird. Like if they have broken up, they end up, you know, attending this party separately. And like, he's like, let's set a date for our wedding. And she's like, we're broken up. I, I just don't understand how that even Yeah. is an argument in a public place. At all. He doesn't sound like a person who's fully hinged. Right, right. After the party, he went home. He told police that he was drunk. The fight made him even more angry at Adrian, so he took revenge. He stood outside the house and smoked while evaluating his next move. He took the knife to pry open the window and accidentally dropped the pack of zip ties. So that's a part where he left his DNA. He then went upstairs and killed the two women. He says that he burned his clothes in a fire pit in his backyard. The following day, Lily called him, upset that her friend Adrian had been killed. And then he went to go console her. Oh, no. Yeah. So they ended up actually getting married in early 2005. So this happened in 2004, Halloween. 2005, a few months later, they got married. His wife, Lily, claims that she did not know that he was the one that killed her friend. To make things worse, let's make this a step worse. They asked Adrian's mother to be part of the ceremony. Arlene Allen, the mother, even brought her other daughter, Lexi, to the wedding. Wow this guy how could you you know knowing that you murdered this woman's daughter invite her mother to the wedding yeah but like also if he would have been like no 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 she can't come lily would have been like why why can't she come that's true I mean, unless it maybe it, maybe it was him and he was like wanted her there but i would imagine it was lily well, Lily was, you know, that was her yeah. really good friend. And so I'm sure her and the mom were a little close, too. But it's just find an excuse. No, we can't invite more people. We have so many yeah. people, just something. But that's a memory she's going to have to hold on to forever now, too. You know, like she was at the wedding. She participated ugh. in it. Just ugh. so in December of 2006, Koppel pled guilty to the two counts of first degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. If he didn't plead guilty, he would have been eligible for the death penalty. Woof. And then also, he said, I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. My relationship with Lily was in jeopardy and crashing. It was all like it fertilized the seed of anger in my heart. There was rage inside me. If only I had listened to those who pleaded with me to get the help that I needed. Woof. Still no excuse, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like with Rabble, I can't see how this would have gotten things better with Lily, right? Like, the problem wasn't Adrian, the problem was him and Lily, because there's two people in a relationship. Right. If one of those people decides to take somebody else's advice, that's their decision. That, and the thing that makes me upset is it worked. Yeah. You know, he he killed her friend, and then she called him as the shoulder to cry on, right? Oh, it's so gross. It's so gross. This really has big vibes of guys who say that they're nice guys, but they engage in stalking behaviors and are loving to the point of abuse which sounds like a strange thing to say but if you're like you can never leave me if you leave me i'll I'll, like hurt myself Mm -hmm. that's abuse exactly yeah so i don't know if that was his intention like you said a couple times like there wasn't really a a foolproof reason that he gave but if that was the rumor of like that she was convincing her friend you can do better and it was just anger and maybe he didn't know that, hey, she would call me as the shoulder to cry on. I don't know if he thought it through that That hard, yeah. I guess. And he was drunk. It sounds like it was just like a drunken, stupid decision that he made. Yeah. Which, no excuse. Like, that's not okay, obviously. But I don't know if he he had an actual plan in his head. It sounds like he didn't. Yeah. So, a couple takeaways that I had from this is don't freaking throw cigarettes on the floor. That's disgusting and awful, and I hate it. And then don't reconcile a relationship while grieving. It's a good one. And then always have a dog. Always have a dog sleep with you forever because they know what's going on. Yeah. Dogs, 10 out of 10, would recommend. Right? And what I was thinking about, too, is just like if I was a neighbor, someone that like walked by while he was smoking outside... That is one of the things that irks me the most is when someone smokes and then they throw their cigarette on the ground. And I feel like I would have lost my mind on him there. And then also, if I ever die in the car, like in the car, if I'm driving, the reason is probably going to be me avoiding an animal one. Or I'm going to piss the wrong person off when I lose it over them littering, especially cigarettes. So just FYI. If I die in a car crash, that's what happened. Okay. Okay. When I was first starting to drive in Maryland, they require that you have like a certain amount of hours with an instructor. And I'm like mm-hmm. in this, my car with like for the first time with this guy and it's his car actually, I think. But we're driving and a squirrel runs out into the middle of the road and I swerve and he's like, mm-hmm. I don't care if the squirrel dies, but I care if I do. Just like completely monotone. Like you can tell that he'd like encountered that. A dozen times in the past week, like young rookie drivers being like, "There's wildlife in the road." (laughs) (laughs) I've done it. I've done it for a cottontail bunny. Yeah, where we probably could have died, but you know what? The bunny, I'm sure, to this day is happy living in the Michaels parking lot where it was heading. Had to get some craft supplies. We were on. I was in the highway with. I don't know who who was I driving with? I don't know, but there was a dog that got out of somebody's car and it was running through lanes of traffic, and it was like kind of slow traffic but people were moving I literally pulled off to the side of the highway and went running into traffic and like ran in front of a Mack truck and like put my little hand up like all like I'm like 5'2 so I was like (laughs) meh and like put my little hand up and I was like that's a dog and people were like yelling at me and I'm like I don't care and then other people also pulled over and we like we didn't capture the dog so that we could take it somewhere but it like ran into the woods off of the highway which felt like Safe. Some type of win. Because it was truly like just darting around four lengths of traffic. And all it took was like somebody be to be like taking a sip of their drink and not notice. Fair. Yeah. Absolutely. I would do that. 1,000%. We keep a leash and treats in each of our cars. Smart. Because you never know. That's a good idea. Save animals. Also 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> so our last Halloween true crime story for this episode is the murder of Rebecca Gay. So we're going to start this one a little differently because I think that the way that her killer escalated over time, actually, I think he just kind of like comes out the gate being a real sick guy. I find fascinating. I think it's just a really good example of what happens when we ignore men being violent to women and how it can get worse and worse and worse. And I just think sometimes how our justice system fails both, but it just just fails flat out. So. Mm -hmm. In 1981, John Douglas White invites his teenage neighbor, Teresa Etherton, over to his house to show her his stock car racetrack that he had set up in his basement. Creepy already. Yeah, a little weird. But like, he was like, come look at this thing. Again, early 80s, a little trusting. Okay. So it's like early 80s. So like, serial killers, I don't think are on everyone's mind. Maybe they are. I wasn't alive then. So while she's there, White suddenly begins choking Etherton and begins stabbing her. He stabbed her a total of 15 times, but she survived. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So when she's talking to police after the attack, she said that during the attack, he said to her, you're going to go. I'm really sorry you had to go like this. But what the fuck? You're just a woman. Oh, wow. And chills, like full body chills, like when I first read that, because this is like, oof, disgusting. So he's convicted of assault with intent to murder in 1981, but he appeals because his attorney didn't raise an insanity defense, and it's granted, and he's released. No one tells Atherton. She doesn't even know that he's been released. Oh, no. She's standing in line somewhere one day, and she hears his voice, and she turns around and sees him, and that's how she sees that he's out. And I'm like, holy hell, can you even imagine well and I'm sure that voice is in her mm-hmm. head like it's buried down that's like the scariest thing that can yeah. happen to her right like hearing his yeah. voice again well especially I mean I would imagine she was like okay like he's in jail like I'm okay and then she's just like living her life and there he is and also like she was 17 at the time of the attack so she was like just a baby she's so young mm-hmm. so fast forward to 1995 he's married but he's having an affair with a co-worker her name's Sue Wall Sue Wall goes missing and the last time she was seen she was seen getting into White's pickup truck he claims that He dropped her off and that she was fine the last time he saw her, but her remains are found two miles from where she was seen getting into his truck. When they find her body, it's too decomposed to ascertain the cause of death. Police use Luminol to search for blood in White's truck and they see blood in there, but that's the only evidence they have connecting him to the murder. Yeah. And so they arrest him, but they can't really charge him for full out murder because they don't have enough evidence. So he pleads down to involuntary manslaughter because of the lack of evidence. He serves a little over 12 years in prison disgusting. Again, he just he just gets yeah, out. Yeah, he just gets out. So he's released in 2007. A few years later, he becomes a pastor at a church. Of course. As one does. And his congregation is aware of the crimes that he's committed. But they're kind of the mentality that, like, people can grow and everyone sins. And I'm like, look, there's a difference. No, not when it comes to murder. I'm sorry. Also, we're talking two, right? Like, I'm not saying that one's fine. He's done it multiple times and it's clear that he has an issue with women. So, I mean, this isn't like a he can repent and move on kind of thing, in my opinion. So a few years later, he's engaged to a woman named Sally Gay and he's living in a trailer by himself. Now, Sally's daughter, Rebecca, also lives in the trailer park and she lives with her three-year-old son named Conway. And Rebecca worked, I want to think, at a local thrift store and sometimes White would help her get her son dressed in the morning because I think he would um, go with his biological father to daycare or something like that. So White would help her get her son dressed and she trusted him because it was her mom's fiance. Oh no. so on november 1st of 2012 rebecca's co-workers report her missing when she doesn't show up for work police question white because his trailer is near rebecca's and the resident of the trailer park suggests that they might want to go talk to white from everything i've read he he's like a canary like he didn't even try to deny it he said that he had quote been having bad thoughts for about two weeks about killing rebecca and then having sex with her dead body oh my gosh yeah and her mother was engaged to this guy yeah How do you get engaged to someone and not know that they were in jail twice for essentially killing two people? I mean, I know one survived, but barely. Yeah, like not for a lack of trying, right? And I think she did know. I think she was a member of his congregation. So he had been watching porn with necrophilia in it before the murder. He drank four or five beers and then he grabbed zip ties and a rubber mallet and headed over to Rebecca's trailer. When he went in, he noticed that a light came on. So when Rebecca came out to look out the door where Whitehead come in, he struck her with a mallet until she lost consciousness. Now, like, just as a note, her three-year-old son is in a room in the trailer. Like, while all this is happening. No. So he then strangled her with the zip ties that he'd brought. He took her into the kitchen area and remembered undressing her, but doesn't remember if he had sex with her. But I'm pretty sure he did. So he then... Leaves her trailer, goes back to his, grabs heavy-duty trash bags so that he can dispose of her body, the weapons, and the towels and such that he used to clean up. So he dumps her body in the towels on a nearby road and then dumps her body in a different location. He then drove her car and parked it near a local bar named Barn Door so that folks would think she had been kidnapped. And he threw her phone, keys, and purse in the trailer park dumpster. Oh, my gosh. Well, a couple things with that. So he drove her car to the bar. Mm -hmm. But then takes her phone, keys, and wallet and puts them in the trailer park dumpster. Yeah, that seems like a bad plan. You should have put it all together or had it like scattered. Or somewhere at the barn. Yeah. Or the the barn door, sorry. And put it in that trash can would make more sense. But leaving the evidence in the trailer park, if she would have left the trailer park to go to this bar, she would have brought those items. So that was stupidity on his side too. Yeah. After he does all that, he then returns to Rebecca's trailer and helps get her three-year-old son, Conway, dressed in his Halloween costume so that his father can come pick him up. That's horrific. Or Truly horrific. Like the fact that he like went back to the scene of the crime to like help a little kid is like very bizarre to me. And what's he going to say when the dad picks him up? Oh, I'm babysitting him. I don't know where she is. No, that's, I believe that's what he said because he was like, it didn't seem like anything was wrong when he came to pick up his son. Like he wasn't like, oh, no. And because sometimes he would watch him in the mornings. It wasn't weird. Yeah. So he pled guilty for her murder and was sentenced to at least 45 years in prison in April of 2013. By August of 2013, he dies of self-inflicted asphyxiation. So he fucking kills himself. So only a couple months later. Yeah. He barely spends any time in prison before he does that. And all the accounts that I read was that they were like, they really tried to revive him because they wanted him to serve a sentence for what he had done because this was too easy. Mm-hmm. But some gruesome tales of true crime that happened on and around Halloween. So maybe people are inspired to act a little bit more malicious or mischievous. Right? Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Three out of the four stories, though, pretty much had a reason for it to be on Halloween night. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the nun one, not so much. There's no reason that it happened that particular night. But the other ones helped cover up what was happening. Because it was Halloween night or Halloween night triggered the, you know, the drunk anger for one of them. But the others, it was just, yeah, Halloween night. They went out. I don't know where she went or trick or treat. Nope, never mind. I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. So it was a reason to open the door. So yeah, Halloween did inspire three out of four of these. Yeah, really an interesting batch for sure. Next week, we plan on doing our Halloween episode to get you through the holiday. We release episodes every Friday, so we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.